The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 6. Who has believed what they heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everybody, Uh, and thank you again, Charles, uh, for doing that twice today. Uh, We're right in the middle of our summer series on uh, the book of Isaiah, and we're covering uh, various uh, key themes in Isaiah, and and today we are looking at uh, what might be the pinnacle text of the entire Bible. Um, This is a scripture that... um, that ought to have a deep impact uh, on the reader, especially the reader who has been awakened to uh, what's being talked about and who's being talked about here. So there have been a small handful of times in my life where I have uh, in the past encountered uh, what you would call a famous person. Uh, The first time this happened was when I was a teenager and I showed up uh, at home after basketball practice and seated at our dinner table was Tattoo from Fantasy Island. You remember him? Hervé Velichez? And uh, um, so he was in town speaking at a benefit and our neighbors down the street were hosting him and somehow my father convinced them all to come over to dinner that night. And yes, we did uh, get him to say the plane, the plane several times. Uh, For those of you who are under 40, you'll have no idea what I'm talking about, and and that's okay. Just, you know, go on YouTube and look up Fantasy Island. Um, Another time was was actually uh, early on in our time in New York City when... um, when several of us assembled in sort of the new, new, new season of small groups developing and, and a really well-known talk show host showed up at our small group. Uh, I was a little bit speechless when that happened. Another time was in our, our St. Louis church, the church that I used to pastor, uh, and a, a Hall of Famer baseball player uh, showed up with his family one Sunday morning. And, and again, I was speechless and probably said something really dumb and embarrassing. Um, it does have this kind of crazy effect on, it, uh, on us, doesn't it? When we encounter somebody that we, we think is sort of superhuman, 
right? Maybe they've accomplished some, some, some really kind of outstanding things uh, in their field or, or they're just, just well-known and, and somehow we get tongue-tied, sometimes we get starstruck. Um, and this, this, this type of experience, when we moved to New York, started to happen more and more. And then when we moved to Nashville, even more than in New York, if you can imagine it, because the celebrity in Nashville is a lot more concentrated than it is in places like New York, and the diva factor is everywhere, right? And, and so what's happened over time, though, for me, as, as I've gotten to meet people who are more widely known, um, is that my wife's mantra about the famous person has started to get into me. Her mantra is this, everyone puts on their pants one leg at a time. <laughs> in other words, everybody's significant. Everybody matters. And nobody matters too much, like more than the other person, right? And um, there's just this sort of leveling uh, that, that, that my wife has taught me and that, that sort of experience over time getting to know people like Tattoo, right, uh, who um, had his own struggles. And we found that out over dinner. And you would find this out if you, if you had a conversation, a real, honest, transparent conversation with somebody maybe whose life you think is just so great and so big and so famous and so wonderful, you realize that everybody's human just like you are, that everybody has struggles, that everybody has regrets and pain and loneliness and, and father wounds and, and, and all the rest. Everybody does. Now, lately, I've been... Um, been looking at biographies of famous people, uh, watching documentaries, reading, you know, some stories and essays. And some of the most recent ones are Amy Winehouse, incredibly gifted musician, uh, jazz singer who became popularized, who died of a drug overdose in her 20s. Another that I've always been fascinated with is Kurt Cobain, the front man for the rock band Nirvana, uh, who died from suicide in his 20s. Uh, and then Madonna. Madonna really fascinates me. You, you may have encountered that uh, interview that she did with, with uh, uh, Vogue magazine. Uh, it was very candid. Uh, she said, the thing that drives me in life, the thing that, that, that keeps me so driven is this, this fear that I have of being seen as mediocre. That's Madonna, you guys. Um, and so over time, I've sort of come to appreciate that, that everybody struggles, that everybody's kind of on a level playing field. I'm less impressed with celebrity than I used to be. I'm less slack-jawed. I'm less speechless. Uh, I'm convinced, I truly am, that if Bono came into our doors and walked into our church, that, that I would treat him more like just a regular human being than I would have, you know, 15 years ago, right? Uh, coming from this lifetime U2 fan. However, where's he going with this? However... There is a single exception to this. There is one famous person who should cause your jaw to drop whenever you encounter him. You should be starstruck with him. He, his presence, his reality should make you tremble. It should make you want to instinctively and impulsively take your shoes off, drop to your knees, and shut your mouth. And that person has been described to us in the scripture that's already been read to us. It's Jesus Christ, whom Isaiah refers to as a suffering servant. Here's the thing. He does not appear that magnificent and amazing 
unless his magnificence and amazingness and fame and splendor and grandeur, as it says in verse 1, has been revealed to you. There's some, there's some kind of switch that God has to have, 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 have uh, tripped in your heart in order for you to get this. That the true hero is the one that you least expect. The, 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 the only one who's deserving of fame and fawning is the one that m- most people just kind of bypass and forget about. It's Jesus. So I'd like to explore that theme under three headings this morning. The truth about his power, the truth about our sin, and then the truth about his love. So let's start, about, let's start with the truth about his power. This is the thing that, that, that was so hard for people to see, and maybe even today. That the power of Jesus comes into the world most especially through his humiliation. Not through his fame, not through his name and lights, but through his humiliation and also through ours. So the history of Israel, this this, uh, prophecy from Isaiah was first written to the people of Israel. And they were in exile, they were suffering greatly. And uh, this was just another season of their history where they were experiencing defeat or anticipation of defeat, right? They were defeated in Egypt by Pharaoh who enslaved them. They were defeated by Assyria who also enslaved them. They were defeated by Nebuchadnezzar who also took them into captivity and enslaved them, Babylon. And so the story of Israel by this time has become a story of longing, of waiting, of regret, of sorrow. And they're anticipating this promised savior, this promised king who would come. And they're assuming all along that, 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 that his dominance is going to come politically and through military action. And so imagine their confusion when their Messiah is announced in this way. He will be tender and fragile. Nothing about his appearance will make us desire him. He will be despised, rejected, a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, will be appalled by the sight of him. He'll be disfigured, humiliated, and defeated. And that's how he's going to win the universe. Imagine the surprise. Imagine the confusion. But imagine this as well. Those times when we have asked the question, can God really relate to my sorrow, to my loss, to my pain, to the bruise on my heart. Can he really relate? And if there is ever anything that has been written or communicated that communicates that, that, that God becomes most relatable to us when we are in our pain. You know, C.S. Lewis said this. He whispers to us in our joys, but he shouts to us in our pain. And part of the way he shouts to us is me too. Been there. Still there because your precious tears are precious to me. Precious still in my sight is the death of those who belong to me. You know, Hebrews chapter 4 describes Jesus in this way that, that he's a, a high priest who is not unable. In other words, who is able. It's a double negative. Who is able 
to sympathize with our weakness because he's been tested and tried and tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. And so, so this, is, this is an eye of the beholder thing and you have to have a certain kind of eye Again, an eye that God has, has illuminated. You have to have a certain kind of eye in your heart to see this, that what Isaiah calls the arm of the Lord is revealed through his humiliation and death. This phrase, the arm of the Lord, is a Hebrew idiom. It's, it's a very you know, commonly used idiom. If you think about an arm, think about a bicep, think you know, CrossFit, Iron Tribe, you know, think that. Okay, this, this phrase, the arm of the Lord, is, is an idiom that, 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 that is communicating his strength, how powerful he is, how undefeatable he is, how grand and how majestic. And, and, and Israel is probably asking the question, what in the world? This arm of the Lord, this power of God is revealed through him becoming a despicable specimen in the sight of the world that nobody will desire. So here's what it says. Here's how, it explain, here's how Isaiah explains that. He goes on in verse 4 to say, he took up our infirmities. Now that's active language. That's active verb language. And what it's saying is Jesus is nobody's victim. Ain't nobody defeated Jesus Christ. All of this was chosen by Jesus Christ. It's all voluntary. He chose, he orchestrated his own humiliation and death. That's what he's talking about. You know, if, if, you, if, if we fast forward to chapter 54 and 55 of Isaiah, it, it makes mention of this covenant that God made, that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made within the Trinity in eternity past before humanity even existed. It's called the covenant, Isaiah calls it the covenant of peace. And that covenant was this. At creation, God was going to declare to the first humans and, and, and therefore to all humans that this is my law, that this is my standard, that, that, that this is the bar. You've been created by, after my image, and so the bar is you've got to be like me. You've got to be perfect. You've got to obey me perfectly. And if you, disobey, if you do obey me perfectly, you have the right to live. You have the right to never die. But if you disobey me, even once, the wages of that, the penalty of that will be death. And so what the Father, Son, and Spirit agreed to, this covenant of peace, was this. Sin cannot be overlooked. Disobedience cannot be overlooked. Justice must be satisfied. Justice must be served. And the only way to do that and keep them for myself is through substitution. I've got to die on their behalf. And so that's what I'll do, Jesus said. The Father and the Spirit agreed. Jesus was a, was, was a willing participant, but he was also the orchestrator. John chapter 10, he, he makes it very clear. He says, he says, nobody takes my life from me. Are you kidding me? Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. 
And the critics will say, well, what's so special about that? What's so unique about that? There have been all kinds of people all throughout history who've given their lives in order to save or protect somebody else. The list is long. Soldiers, police officers, firefighters, freedom fighters, civil rights leaders, mothers giving birth, some missionaries who've gone into dangerous territory. All these people have made a conscious decision to give up their lives so that others can live or thrive or have a better shot. So what's the big deal here? The big deal is how unique Jesus' death is. Is all of the above, everybody, every kind of person I just mentioned, mentioned, valiant, right? To give your life for another. But that's not choosing to die. That's just choosing when you're going to die or, or how you're going to die. But that's not a choice to die. We have no choice in the matter. We are going to die. Jesus had a choice in that matter. See, see, we laud all of these people, and rightly so, because they died for a cause. But Jesus and Jesus alone chose to die for a cause. He was the one person who kept the Genesis 2 covenant, never disobeyed a single word of God, never disobeyed a single command, not even in his heart, not even in his motivation, never did anything wrong, tempted in every way, without sin, every right to live and never die. He says, you know what, I'd rather go through hell than to not have them. See how unique he is? He chose to die for a cause, and we were the cause. So my, my daughter Ellie and I watched The Lion King last night. This is the third interpretation of The Lion King that we've seen, and I, it was my particular favorite. There's a scene that really caught me again last night where Mufasa, who's the, the king and the lion, you know, rules the land. Everything that the light touches, he is the, the king of it. And, and he's talking to and mentoring his son Simba, who is the next in line for the kingdom. And Mufasa is mentoring Simba in what it means to really be a king. And, and uh, here's what he said to his son. While some search for what they can take, a true king searches, searches for what he can give. That's what a true king does. You know, 2 Chronicles 6, 16, 9 talks about the eyes of the Lord, the searching eyes of the Lord. It says, the eyes of the Lord roam, search throughout the earth. Why? To strengthen the hearts of those who belong to him. Here's how he strengthens our hearts. Here's how he intends to strengthen our hearts. Our greatest source of strength is the way that he voluntarily became weak for us. The arm of the Lord means a couple of things. First, there's the physical triumph of resurrection coming out of the grave, up from the dead. And, and, and we rightly say, man, Easter, if there was ever a manifestation of the arm of the Lord, if there was ever a manifestation of power and might, it was when he came up from the dead, defeating death, the death of death, because of the resurrection of the Son of God. But did you ever think about Good Friday being just as much a manifestation of power as Easter Sunday? 
Why? Because what kind of internal fortitude do you think somebody has to have in order to say that I'm going to die when I don't have to, I'm going to suffer when I don't deserve it, I'm going to take all the blame and absorb all the shame when I don't deserve it because I love my enemies that much. What kind of internal fortitude do you think it takes? What kind of power on the inside do you think it takes to say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do? And then breathe his last. Sarah B., who is the widow, who becomes the widow of Mufasa in The Lion King, continues the mentoring process with uh, their son, with Simba, who is about to become king. And here's what she says to her son as she remembers her deceased lion husband. I don't know what you call a lion, who, I guess her husband. <laughs> Trying to picture that wedding ceremony. But here's what she says to Simba, a true king's power is his compassion. Compassion is power. Loving your enemies, giving yourself up that they may live, is power. That's precisely what Christ did. He had every reason to destroy his enemies, and he didn't. So that's the truth about power. The truth about sin or specifically our sin, is that it put Jesus on the cross. See, the difference between a heart to whom this all has been revealed and a heart to whom it is not, is that the heart that this has not been revealed to is going to be kind of unmoved by all of this. Whereas if, if the truth about God's power coming through his humiliation is revealed to you, you're going to become unmoored. You're going to become like Rembrandt, who, who instinctively, when he, when he painted a depiction of the crucifixion of Christ, painted his own face on one of the people doing uh, the crucifying. Or, or like Mel Gibson, as he produced The Passion of the Christ and decided that his one and only appearance in the film was going to be his hand, which was the hand that drove the nails into the Lord onto the cross. You're going to become so non-defensive. You're going to stop making excuses and shifting blame so much. When the arm of the Lord is revealed to you, because it says that he is pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. By the way, this is Isaiah who is the most righteous person in the whole world at this time. He's including himself punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. By his wounds, we are healed. Not y'all are healed, but we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. One of the messages here is like that, just how utterly gruesome the cross was. The, 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 the degree of betrayal, the degree of agony, the, just the gruesomeness of that visual of Jesus on the outside, lashed, bleeding, bruised, 
If God is truly and perfectly just, which he is, that's one of his attributes, that's part of how his character works, then the punishment perfectly fits the crime. That's a picture of who we are on the inside. What Jesus looked like on the outside is what we look like on the inside. Left to ourselves, we are disfigured. Left to ourselves, we are gross. Left to us, there is nothing about us that should cause us to desire him, or or that should cause him to desire us. Even Isaiah, chapter 6, we've been through this text a few weeks ago. The most righteous person in the world, when he gets a little tiny bitty glimpse of the nature and character of God, he says, woe to me, I'm ruined. I'm unclean. I'm a dirty man. He repeats the theme in Isaiah 54 where he says, our best works, the best contribution that we ever make, our most virtuous moments are like filthy rags. Literal translation from the Hebrew, sorry folks, a little offensive, a little raw, menstrual cloth, use tampon. Don't write me a Monday morning email, that's what the Bible says. That's, that's, That's the degree of grossness that even our best efforts are in the sight and nostrils of God the moment we start to take a little bit of credit, the moment we start to think even just a little bit that God owes me a little bit of a kickback for this. It's gross relative to his impeccable holiness and beauty. This is why Charles Darwin recanted the Christian faith of his childhood. Charles Darwin was utterly offended by what we in our Presbyterian Reformed circles call the tea of the tulip, total depravity. Like Genesis 6, 5 says, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Does that mean that people don't do good stuff? No, it doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that even the good stuff we do is tainted with corruption, is tainted with twisted motives, is tainted with self-interest. And so Darwin was offended by that notion. And he says, so you're trying to say that good people like my father could possibly be damned if they don't believe in Jesus. And Darwin went on to say that that, the tea and the tulip, is a damnable doctrine. The doctrine of damnation is damnable, according to Darwin. You know, in his mind, and, and maybe in the minds of many, there's this picture of God as, some, as a demanding parent who can never be pleased. I don't know if you've ever seen the interview that, that the novelist Amy Tan did with the New York Times. She's the author of The Joy Luck Club, really well-known uh, uh, story. Uh, she writes about the immigrant experience, and this, this story was so compelling, it was turned into a movie, blockbuster, uh, etc., so she calls her mom when, when, when uh, the book get, you know, hits sort of the pinnacle. It, 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 she gets all the way to number four on the New York Times bestselling list. She calls her mom and says, I hit number four. Okay, so, so background, Amy, Amy Tan grew up with a mother who wanted her to be both a neurosurgeon, uh, a world-renowned neurosurgeon during the week, and then an accomplished uh, you know, Carnegie Hall concert pianist on the weekends. Like that, that, that's what her mother raised her toward, right? And so she calls her mom, uh, who's probably disappointed that she's become a novelist, and, 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 you know, just a novelist, right? And, and she says, I'm the number four on New York Times. And her mother's first response was, who got number three, two, and one? 
We don't need a mother to say these things to our hearts. You know, we, we say, oh, nobody's perfect. To err is human, but is it? Maybe Amy Tan's mother is not being too harsh. She's just being a little bit too realistic because maybe we were actually made for perfection. Maybe we actually were made to be number one all the time and every time. Maybe we were created to be perfect. Maybe that's God's actual ideal. Maybe that's the image of God in us. Whatever drives us to perfectionism, whatever drives us you know, to, to be first, maybe, maybe the, the, the actually good aspect of that, there's a lot of twisted stuff to that, but, but maybe the good aspect of that is that's actually what we're made for. And we've missed it. We've lost paradise and we've lost the excellence for which we've been created, morally, vocationally, and otherwise. You know, Isaiah, by the way, speaking of number one bestsellers, Isaiah is one of the most famous chapters in the book that if it was included, if the New York Times decided to include it, it would be number one on the New York Times list every single week. The Bible. Isaiah is one of the chief contributors. And yet, he gets a tiny little glimpse of God and he's awakened to this impossibly high bar that no one can live up to. Maybe you've never had a vision of God like that, but you have a Bible. And there's a reason why we are drawn to certain parts of the Bible and we sort of just turn the other way with other parts like... You know, whatever you did or didn't do for the least of these, that's what you did or didn't do for me. You know, sheep and the ghost, like that kind of hard stuff. Theory, the parts of the Bible that we should pay closest attention to are the parts that we don't underline, but that's another sermon. Mark Twain said that the parts of the Bible that bothered him most weren't the parts that he didn't understand. He said the parts that bothered him the most were the parts that he did understand. Sometimes it's not the Bible. Sometimes it's another person that God uses to show us the truth about our own corruption, right? So, so Paul David Tripp, who's a pastor uh, in our tradition, he's also a counselor, and he's written some really great books about the human heart and the way the gospel works and how repentance works. But, but he describes in, in one of his books called Dangerous Calling, it's a book specifically for pastors, in the introduction of that book, he talks about a season where he was pastoring a church, the church was thriving, it was growing, you know, just humming along, humming along but it was also a season where he was very angry. And the person that, that experienced this the most, right, was his wife. And so one day after church, um, they, they, they're, they're going at it, you know, uh, you know, that afternoon, on Sunday afternoon, and he pulls out the I'm a great pastor card to sort of shut down any criticism that she might have for him. And he says to her, you realize, don't you, that over nine, uh, that 95% of the women in our church would, be loved, would love to be married to a man like me. And her response, I guess that puts me in the 5%. They're still married, and happily so. What an amazing picture of the gospel that is. Still married, happily so. Even after that. Which brings me finally to the truth about love. Rich Mullins, um, this is a documentary about the life of Rich Mullins. He was a musician who was also a Christian. 
And in this documentary, it, it, it gets him saying something to a crowd that he's playing music for. And he just sort of stops between songs and he says, See, the thing about God is, God has bad taste. And we should all be really glad about that. And why should we be glad? Because we, we ought to be hearing from God. I guess that puts me in the 5%, right? At least that's what we think we ought to hear. You know, we're, 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 we, we get it when Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm unclean. Like, we get it. We all, we all have shame. We all have regrets that we deal with, right? But what we don't quite know what to do is the wife, do with is the wife or, or the God who says, I should be done with you. And, and doubles down on his commitment to us. Triples down even. Stooping in order to conquer us, as Spurgeon said. When God is finished, after God is finished dealing with Isaiah, I'll give you a little bit of a preview, a little bit of a fast forward. Chapter 62. You want to know what it says? This is after all of this filthy rags and, and woe is me uh, narrative. None of which God denies is true all of which God's, God affirms is true. And yet God, through Isaiah, through this same man, says this in chapter 62, those who are hidden in death, hidden in the death and burial and resurrection of the suffering servant are given a new name. And here's, here's what God says through Isaiah. Here's what your name is. Righteous, glorious, a crown of beauty. Here's the verdict over you from your maker. You shall not be called forsaken or desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. This connection to the land and, 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 and how, how he conflates it with marriage. You just think about the worst, most tragic 15, 20, 35, 100 square feet of your life, like the place that you wish just didn't exist anymore because your memories associated with that place are so freaking painful and so freaking sad and they've left this bruise on your heart. Even those square feet, God is going to say to you in the same way that he says of the land of exile in Babylon to Israel. Your land is going to be married. In other words, the whole earth, the whole universe is going to someday be your everlasting honeymoon suite. It's going to be redeemed. It's going to be transformed. And the pain you experience there will actually contribute to the amplification of your joy in being connected to the one who loved you and gave himself for you. Your land will be married for the Lord delights in you. And he goes on to say, as a young man marries a young woman, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God has bad taste. He should have broken up with us, we think. He should have orphaned Israel. We've cheated on him. We've betrayed him. We've been unfaithful to him. And he doubles and triples down and he sees the harlot in us and he says, I'm gonna make you my queen. Your land is going to be called married. I'm going to rejoice in you like a new husband does on the wedding night over his brand new bride. Our marriage is always going to be new. It's always going to be fresh. Always. But it's not because you are my choice people. Because you're not. I have bad taste. And isn't that good news for you? You are my chosen people. Not my choice people. 
but you are, I don't have choice people, but you are my chosen people. Have you heard the, the story of the Duke of Windsor? So he was like Simba in The Lion King. Duke of Windsor was next in line for the throne of the UK, and he abdicated. Because he fell in love with a woman named Wallace Simpson, an American socialite who had been twice divorced. And this, of course, caused a constitutional crisis in the UK because, because in the UK, the, the state and the church were one and the same. And you know, here we have our, our, our future king wanting to marry a woman who is damaged goods as we see it. And so what does the Duke of Windsor do? He gives up the throne so that he can marry her and he becomes the Duke of Windsor instead of the King of England. And all of the family and the friends and the media are saying, what in the world are you doing? What are you thinking? Have you, have you gone nuts? And his, his simple answer was, you don't know her like I do. If you ever doubt the love of God, if you ever feel like you are damaged goods, you've, you've been way too unfaithful, that there's nothing in your appearance that should cause him to desire you, that there's a bruise on your heart, maybe because of something that's been done to you or somebody else's decision that, that has put a bruise on your heart. Just remember that the King of Kings and Lord, the rightful King of Kings and Lord of Lords gave up his throne to have you with all of your betrayals, with all the many times that you tried to divorce him and sever yourself off from your covenant to him and run off with all of his money. Like every time that you've tried to do that to him and run into the arms of some other lover, the God who has bad taste continued to pursue you. That is what this table is about. When we approach this table, there, there should be two emotions, and they sound conflicting, but they're really paradoxical. They belong together, and they serve and support each other. When we approach this table, we should experience lament, because this table wouldn't need to exist if it weren't for our many, 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 many betrayals and adulteries. And yet, Jesus says, I'm setting this table, my body and my blood, because under no circumstances will your betrayals surpass my love and my will and my passion to reconcile. What greater motivation do we need than, th than this to be faithful to him for the rest of our days? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord's table. We thank you for uh, the parable of the wedding feast even, Lord, where, where you, as the host, say, don't just bring the good people. Don't just invite the good people to my wedding feast. You say, invite the bad as well as the good. Invite anyone you can find to fill my banquet hall. Lord, thank you that you have bad taste which means that the rich and poor are included in this invitation, the clean and the dirty, the sick and the healthy, the broken and the whole, all are invited. 
And the only thing that we have to offer, the, the, the ticket price, is empty hands. So, Father, for those of us in here today with empty hands, would you set apart and consecrate this, this body and this blood, this bread and this cup? Strengthen us. Strengthen us with the reality that, that, that we don't even know ourselves like you know us and, and that we certainly don't love ourselves like you love us. You gave up your throne that we might live and, and, and ultimately share it with you. And for this, we're so grateful. Serve us, we pray, at your table that we may be free, that we may be whole, and that we may become faithful. Because what other course is there to take after we discover your great and unfailing love for us? It's in your name we pray. Amen.